The book of Genesis is given its name because in Hebrew, the first word that is used, we translate in English as in the beginning, but that's synonymous with Genesis. And a lot of the, the Hebrew books, they didn't really think too hard about what they should entitle them. They just used the first phrase or first concept in the opening verses. And, and so that's why we, we have this book that's at the beginning of our Bibles that um, begins with, in the beginning created God, is how the Hebrew reads the, that opening line. And as you probably noticed already, as, as we mentioned, different teaching format, which seems to be a little bit of a tradition the past couple of weeks. We aren't going back to anything normal nowadays. Uh, so both Pastor Brad and myself, my name's Keith, we're here to uh, kind of give an introduction to this series that we're calling Beginnings, appropriately again, uh, based on this book. And uh, why we decided to do this is we understand that Genesis, even though it is the first book, there's a lot of mysterious stuff that this book contains, and there's a lot of tradition associated with this book. And so instead of presenting a sermon, per se, on a certain section of this, we decided let's have a bit more of an open dialogue between the two of us, and we're actually going to have a time for question and, and response uh, later on in our teaching time, because if we were to really preach through this chapter, it, it quite literally could take us several weeks or even months to really flesh out the deepness of this text. And, and so this is just our, our time to kind of look at the broader themes together, and uh, we've chosen to, to look at this chapter and this text at this point in 2011 for a specific reason. So Brad's going to give us a little bit of, of a reason for why that is. Well, I think one of the reasons to start the year with the book of Genesis is um, right away, just like when you read any book or when you engage with any film or uh, any narrative, a lot of the good stuff that you need to know comes right in the beginning of that story. So right at the beginning of the Bible, you get a lot of good stuff up front. Uh, you meet all the major characters. You get introduced to uh, a lot of the topics that are going to dominate the conversation for the rest of the narrative. Uh, you get introduced to the villains, what the main problems are, what the potential outcomes or solutions to those could be, and how you get a sense of how the book or the movie that you're watching is going to play out. And the same is true with the book of Genesis. Genesis starts by giving us some of the, the big picture categories or themes that are going to carry us through uh, the rest of the biblical story. We learn about God uh, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We learn about God's incredible love for humanity. We learn about what the fundamental problem uh, with the world is. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. Uh, we're, we talk about, in Genesis, already signs of early redemption and what's that going to potentially look like. Uh, we learn about uh, all of the characteristics or a lot of the characteristics of God, about his sovereignty, his justice, his grace, his creative initiation. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And it's really uh, a foundational book to help us understand how the rest of the story of redemptive history unfolds. And I think back for us, when we were, uh, this concept of foundations, when we were building our house here in Willoughby a number of years ago, foundations are really important stuff. There's a ton of stuff you can mess up when you're building a house and you can kind of fix it or cosmetically, you can do some adjustments and get it right. But when you pour a foundation, you gotta get that right because you're gonna build on that, uh, everything else that, that exists 
persist in that. And so if you get that shaky or if that's off in some way, um, it really doesn't serve you well. And so the book of Genesis really lays out a lot of foundational pieces that the rest of the scripture builds on. And so we wanted to kind of at the start of this year go back to Genesis to beginnings and say, all right, let's go over some of those pieces together and lay a really solid foundation and so that can help us as we try and wrestle with some of the truths that we find in other places uh, in Scripture. So. And a, another reason, this is pretty key too, uh, we understand that this book and the whole concept and the questions that come from Genesis, it's, it's a bit of a hot topic now. And truthfully, it's actually been a hot topic for a few centuries and back since uh, scientific knowledge began to uh, come about and, and expand and more questions came back to what is the Bible actually saying? How do we interpret this? Uh, but even in our, in our world now, as scientific discovery continues to happen, as our knowledge of the Scripture and of the ancient societies that the Scripture was written to begins to grow as well, there's just more and more people who are asking these questions. And as an example, uh, sometimes during the week, I look at MSNBC just to kind of see, okay, what sort of pop culture things is going on. It's usually pretty pointless stuff. But anyhow, they, they had one, the Pope, there was a big headline that uh, Pope Benedict, he had uh, during his, his uh, massive epiphany, he had issued a few statements, and it was kind of the first time in quite some time that the Catholic Church had spoken directly to this. And there wasn't a ton that was said, but of course the media liked to jump in on it. And so they kind of said, well, now he's saying that maybe there was a Big Bang, but God was behind the Big Bang. And so they're doing a lot of speculating. And, and we look at the Catholic Church, I mean, this is an institute that hundreds of years ago, they basically said, no, we have to go with literal interpretations of Scripture, and so science is wrong, and, and this is counter to what we know. And then just in the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of changes to what they've said in, in their core beliefs and even their attitude towards science. And so it's very interesting. You look at individuals, people, beliefs. You look at institutions. If you went to a Bible school or a university that has Christian values and, and mission statements, and their kind of confession of faith, a lot of those have changed in the last 50 years or so as they've kind of asked these questions of, well, what do we know from kind of measurable science about how the world came to be and what's in it? And then what do we see about the Bible and what's compatible and what isn't? So um, at Jericho Ridge, we, we just kind of want to be people who we interact with this, we don't shy away, and we say, well, let's look at these questions and let's try to really understand what the Scriptures are communicating to us. Yeah, and I, th I think it's... I mean, there's other dynamics that are at play in this conversation too. Um, we've had in the last number of years just a lot of uh, books that have been written about different topics, both within the Christian movement and then outside of that as well, uh, the rise of the new atheists and trying to learn how as thinking people to respond to and engage in conversations that are happening every day in our world is a part of what we want to be about as a faith community. Um, we were looking even at just this last week, uh, the January publication of our own denomination's uh, print piece, the MB Herald, which if you remember here, you'll get that in your mailbox pretty soon. Uh, that's dedicated to a theology of creation. And so uh, there's a lot of discussion that kind of is, that pivots around Genesis, particularly Genesis chapter 1 and a story of origins. I mean, it addresses all kinds of things. It addresses atheism. It addresses science, education, faith, and doubt. Um, there's just a lot that's kind of going on in this conversation. 
And so our, our desire as leaders within the church is to say, you know what, if this is a live and active conversation, let's equip ourselves as a group with the tools for discussion and to be able to engage uh, as people of faith in the world. And so you'll, if you hang out with us here at Jericho Ridge for any length of time, you'll get the sense or you'll get to know that this is something that we do on a regular basis, is that we don't sort of say, oh, that sounds really complex. Let's not talk about that at all and let people figure that out on their own. We work with each other in dialogue and in conversation to try and come to some conclusions as to what does the Scripture teach about these things. Right, and, and those, uh, some of you will remember uh, a while ago we looked at the question of women in ministry leadership, which again involves a number of biblical texts that sometimes they don't appear like there's a lot of clarity to, and we decided, you know what, this is something that we want to uh, look at in our, in our church life right now to come to some resolution on. And uh, the, the same thing's true here, and, and what, we, what we wanted to communicate then and continue to communicate now is we don't necessarily want to mandate or have everyone come to an agreement of what you should or ought to think. We're more interested in how you think. Uh, not what you think. And, and that really is a, a discipline of being able to train our minds and our hearts to say, okay, what's, what's my approach to the Scriptures? Because then this will equip us later on for more conversations down the road. And when we develop that attitude of openness and dialogue and really trying to understand what's happening, it also affords us opportunities to interact with other individuals who are asking questions who may not have any similarities with our belief system, but right away we get a chance to, to connect with them. Uh, earlier this week I was meeting with Dr. Paul Brown, who's a professor at Trinity Western, and in two weeks from today, we're going to pump this a few times this morning, he's going to be giving us a, uh, a presentation, a couple of presentations actually, on his understanding of the creation account through his, his education in science. And this guy's crazy smart with science, like the last time I took biology and chemistry was in 10th and 11th grade, and uh, I missed about half the conversation he talked to me about, but, but um, one of the cool things that came out of that talk was he was saying when he talked, when he goes to conferences and he speaks with other scientists just around roundtable lunch discussions, he is never usually the one that ends up driving the conversation towards God. It's, it's the scientists and their understanding of, of all the empirical data they've been collecting that kind of goes to this root cause, this designer. And uh, it's just a great evidence of, of the fact of when we allow ourselves to be open-minded and to really ask good questions, the Spirit can really prompt us with some great conversation starters with other people around us. So if, um, if you're like a note taker, you'll notice that we have your journals there for you. Um, and this is the first journal that they've produced in 2011. So just grab your journal there and turn to page 32. And page 32, you can uh, take notes on there. And if you're a bit of a, if you're a note taker, um, uh, you'll probably be a little bit frustrated by today. And just partially because it's a little bit more of a dialogue than it is sort of a, if you're like a, you need a Roman numeral one and then subpoint A and then like you're that type of a note taker, that's not going to work out super great for you today. Just as a, as a proviso uh, on that. So, so this, uh, it's a bit more philosophical as opposed to strictly linear in, in nature, which might frustrate some of you. 
but that's okay. Pastor Keith will be preaching next week on the topic of Sabbath, and he's very organized, so he'll have three points in a poem for you next week, if that's more your orientation. So, all right? So, uh, part of the, Pastor Keith mentioned this, but part of our response today and the formatting of today, uh, we want to engage with questions that you have and uh, want to try and, and press into uh, conversation in those areas. So you're going to need a couple of things this morning. First of all, you'll need your Bible to look through Genesis 1 and uh, get a chance to kind of refresh the story in your mind. Uh, and then you'll need your, normally we tell you to turn this off during Sunday mornings, but you're going to need your phone. You're going to need your smartphone or your, uh, or your cell phone because we want to be able to hear from you uh, in different ways. And so a couple of ways that you can uh, get your questions into the hopper for conversation this morning. Uh, the first one is that if, you're, uh, if you tweet, just get on your Twitter account on your phone and just do a mention, do an at Jericho Ridge, and that'll pop up on here, and we'll know that, that you're engaging in the conversation. And the nice thing about that is that other people can engage in that conversation with you as well uh, in a live and interactive environment. So if that just went totally over your head, you're like, I have no idea what Twitter is, tweeting, or mentions or anything like that. Forget I said any of that. That's for those of you who are in that zone. So uh, that's one way that you can engage with it. Another way is you can just email the questions directly to my email address, uh, brads at jerichoridge.com and that'll come up here, uh, or just text it to me, and we've got our phones here, so that'll, that'll come through as well. Uh, if you do want to go old school, then uh, just do it old-fashioned. Just go to the middle of your journal somewhere, rip out a page, grab a pen, uh, and just write it down. And a couple of times through the morning, we'll just get the ushers to come through and collect those, and they'll drop them off here for us uh, at the front. And so those are just some of the ways that you can uh, send us your questions, and we can engage together in conversation throughout the course of the morning. All right, so be kind of already thinking, what are some questions that I have about Genesis 1? Uh, but there's probably a few ground rules that we should also lay on that. Yeah, we're, we're quickly going to run out of time, I'm sure, this morning. So if you have questions, go ahead and start tweeting them, I guess, and, and writing them down, doing all that sort of stuff. Um, a, a couple of, of, of qualifiers, though. One is that we will, we will keep your name anonymous, so don't worry about asking a question that you think is uh, not a wise one or of mocking our, our dress clothes today. Uh, you can do whatever you want. It's not a, not a big deal. We won't, we won't have your name there. Another is that just because of the, the time restraint this morning, we probably won't be able to get to every question. But if you do end up emailing or text messaging Brad, then that gives Brad or I the opportunity to respond to you sometime this week. And then uh, finally, if you are a scientist and you are unlike me and you have questions specifically uh, having to do with, with what we know of the creation of our world and, and sci scientific studies and all that sort of stuff, we're probably just going to say, let's postpone that for two more weeks when we have Dr. Brown here with us. So if that is the nature of your question, feel free just to maybe put your question on hold. And then uh, Dr. Brown is going to have ample time on the 23rd to respond in a, in a Q&A format. Um, so with that, go ahead and, and send your questions. Ushers, if you want to make your way down the aisles here in the next minute or two to see if there are any paper questions, and then we can get those passed up here. But before we get into the questions, and, and we'll intersperse questions as Brad and I continue to talk, the subtitle that we picked for our series is History, Mystery, and Theology. And uh, we really thought this was an appropriate phrase because we really have examples of each throughout this book, specifically in the first couple of chapters. And uh, so I just kind of want to start with the historical question of 
uh, how do we look at specifically Genesis 1? Do we look at this as kind of an eyewitness account of what really happened, or do we read it differently? Do we read it as a myth story? Do we read it as poetry? Um, so Brad, maybe you can get us started in just saying, what's the appropriate way to approach this text? Yeah, we have a tweet that says, isn't Genesis more of a poetic piece than a scientific one? So speaking to that question. So uh, let's explore that question a little bit. And one of the questions that you will find as you engage in dialogue with people around this is a question of, so like what actually is Genesis 1? Like, and, and part of it's a bit of a big picture question of, can the Bible be trusted uh, as a validated historical account of what occurred? So particularly as it relates to this question of origins or beginnings, this is a good question. So is Genesis 1 to be understood as this is kind of what happened um, and, you know, there's a lot of competing theories and a lot of confusion around this. So let's probe into that and, and explore what could be said about that. So I think the, the first thing that we would want to say about that question is that the Bible is clearly understood to be authoritative and trustworthy. But Genesis 1 actually asks us to push a little bit deeper into what we mean when we use words like authoritative, trustworthy, uh, like trying to define trustworthiness is a big question that is going to pop up in here. So, for example, if by trustworthiness we're looking for scientific, by which we mean empirical, by which we mean verifiable, by which we mean eyewitness account of an event or actuality that we can validate and say this is what went down. Uh, I don't know if this came up in your Sunday school class, but Genesis 1 is actually not that. Because Genesis 1 is not written by eyewitnesses. This is not written by Adam and Eve who are kind of reflecting on something and saying, hey, this, is, this was our encounter with this. Um, this is, it's written as a book uh, to a very specific audience at a very specific point in time and in history. And so their questions and concerns are completely different than the questions and concerns that we have in our day and in our time. So in many ways, the, the response to that or the challenge that comes up from that is the fact that um, we try often to make Genesis 1 give us answers about things that Genesis 1 is not intended to give us answers about in any way, shape, or form. So the problem necessarily isn't with Genesis 1. The problem might be with the way that we're approaching Genesis 1. Uh, so for example, the question of language in Genesis 1. Is this language poetic? What is this reflecting in, in its entirety? Should we understand it literally? Um, the question here, I would say, it's not necessarily, it's not one of truth. Is Genesis 1 truth? But it's a question of the way that truth comes to us or truth is being communicated to us. And so Genesis 1 is very semi-poetic in its form. Another example of this from the scriptures might be, uh, say, Psalm chapter 19. We've been going through the Psalms in our momentum journaling over this last week. Psalm 19 says, uh, in the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. And now we look at that and we ask ourselves questions about that. And we say, well, does that literally mean that God pitched a literal tent? Well, no, there's not a literal tent. What are we to understand from Psalm 19? Well, we're to understand that God placed the sun in its very precise place in the universe, that God was the design and the author of that particular event. But the language of it is very poetic. And we see this a lot of times in the worship songs 
that we sing uh, through the course of a Sunday morning. Like a lot of the language there is poetic, and it's to try and help us understand something that is challenging for us uh, to understand. Because there's vast amounts of material that we can be very, very certain about. And we're going to come back to this in Genesis 1. What is it that we can know then for certain about Genesis chapter 1? But at the same time, we have a lot of disagreement. There's a lot of mysterious stuff in there that because we weren't the first audience that this was written to, we look at it with our minds and we want data that may not necessarily be there. Uh, we were, Brad and I were talking about a, a good example to use earlier this week, and we came up with the, the Bible diet. I don't, I don't know if there are those books out there anymore. But I remember a few years ago, you say, well, if milk and honey is good for the Israelites, you know, maybe that's what we should be eating, and we'll all have kind of Greek God-looking bodies because of that. And, I mean, you just kind of say, well, okay, we're the biblical authors trying to teach us how to eat and exercise, and obviously that isn't the case. But we can do that. We can look at... Uh, any part of the body, or of the Bible, excuse me, and, and specifically now Genesis 1, and say, well, but we are in a culture that we just love eyewitness accounts. We want to know exactly what happened, and for whatever reason, this culture didn't really care about that so much. So w some things that are mysterious questions um, are a little bit easier to discount, like where are, the, where are the dinosaurs? Are they mentioned here? Were dinosaurs and humans living at the same time. Well, we don't really have much information about that, so maybe that doesn't matter. But there are some other questions that are a little bit more difficult for us to sort of just say, well, we, we just are going to leave that one alone. And uh, one of the things that remains a mystery, and we'll certainly continue to see throughout our, our lifetime, is this question of how does science and the biblical accounts, how do those merge together? And there's a lot of great books out there. I just happened to read one over Christmas break called The Lost World of Genesis 1, uh, where the author is a, a biblical scholar, and, and he really says, we need to remember that that this book was written in antiquity, and it was written to an Israelite community, and so we have to try to understand their culture, just like things are written in our culture, and we understand them, and Shakespearean culture was different. I mean, they're asking questions, and they're looking for responses that we aren't necessarily looking for, and, and he says, you know, maybe what we've, what we've done is we want to look at this scientifically when really that isn't the objective. And so the two aren't incompatible. They're looking for, for different things. Science is looking for empirical data. And once they get to a certain point that maybe points to a, a designer or a creator of some sorts, they, in a way, kind of have to stop and say, well, I'm no longer in the realm of science, so I need to go back and, and do something else, where the theologian or the philosopher would say, well, I can pick it up from here and, and look at, at the designer function. And, and so we have a lot of these questions, uh, going back to Brad's point of kind of the, the credibility of the Scripture, that are just sort of like, well, what, what do we do with this? And sometimes we looked at this, this book so many times, they, they just kind of go right through our eyes. But one that I was looking at earlier is, I think it's about verse 3 or 4, uh, where the the writer of this book is talking about the firmament or the expanse. And as you read that, if you look at it quite literally, what it sounds like is that the waters are divided. We've got waters down on the sea area, and then we've got waters that are then divided and kind of held up in the sky. And, and so again, going back to Brad's analogy of, of the sun being held by a tent or in, encompassed by a tent, you kind of have to ask yourself, well, can we go up into the sky and find this kind of body of water that's just sort of hanging there? And the answer is no. But we have to remember 
for this group of people that it was first being written to, they would have understood it that way. So what I think we have is we have the author saying, you guys understand that there is water up there because how else do you, do you understand rain coming down? And when you think about it, for those people, they had to come up with some sort of theory for how things worked. So for them, having some sort of expanse or a, a very large bucket, for a better use of a term, of water up there that would then be rained down, that's how they understood the, the, their world around them. And so this, this chapter is written for, to their worldview to help them understand what exactly is happening. And we have that through other, other points in Scripture where um, some of the prophets talk about the four corners of the earth, or they talk about um, the sun rising and falling, which we still use today, even though we know that we're actually rotating around the sun. So some of these, these issues of mystery, uh, some of them we can kind of reconcile them as we start to, to probe deeper into the text and into the culture of that day, and some of them just remain a mystery to us still. So here's a couple of questions specific to that, and we can kind of both sure. um, engage with that. One, uh, a number of them center around this concept then in the word day. Should I understand then? What should I understand as the evening and morning of first day? Like is this, if we're saying that this is semi-poetic in nature, is a day something different than we've come to understand uh, a day? So did these events transpire in six 24-hour time periods uh, might be one of those questions. So, Well, I'll start in on it. Okay. And, and do, again, uh, Dr. Brown, December, or excuse me, January 23rd, it's called uh, Evolution, Design, and God's Work in Creation, 6 to 8 p.m., so two weeks from today. And you can buy tickets for, for $10 or two for 15, childcare, refreshments, the whole kit and caboodle. I don't even know what that phrase means, but it's, it's going to be a good time, and he can speak to this a lot better than I can. But in my limited knowledge, there's, there's a number of different theories for how this works, and some of you are probably pretty familiar with the six-day literal creation where we've got 24-hour periods, and, and that's how God created it. And there's a number, really with every theory, there's a number of things that help this theory, and there's a number of problems. Um, from our vantage point, reading the text, this is probably the easiest interpretation, I would say, if we look at it and, and we say this isn't poetry, this is historical fact. Some of the problems we encounter, though, is when we look at some things that we know in our world that are true, such as photosynthesis, plants growing and that sort of things, we have plants that are created before the sun or the light, as, it, as it's used in Genesis, is created. So you, there are a few questions where you say, well, how does, how does this work? Which came first and how does life grow from there on out? And then you have to reconcile with Genesis 2 as well, where man is created in day, or at the very beginning, and then woman is created at the very end. So we have a, a different creation account where humanity is kind of the bookmarks of creation. And we see quite obviously uh, man and woman are created at the same time in day six in the first story. Um, but but there, are some, there are some other ways of, of understanding uh, the six-day creation as well. And, and it's certainly uh, not something that was improbable when you begin to think about what this text is, is really saying. And one of the things that people um, might overlook in that question is the word day is actually used three times in Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And it's used in three very, very different ways each time, even though it's the same word. So in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, it uses the word day, and it reflects the light part of a division between light and non-light. So that's the word day that's used there. But then in Genesis 2, 
verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made heaven and earth. So here, the actual entire range of creation is summarized as in the day that God made heaven. So it's, it's a little bit, it's not impossible to think that it could have been six literal day events. But the language that's used here gives us a clue that that might not be the most helpful interpretation that's trying to be communicated. The other part of that reality is that we, we're wildly enamored with time as 21st century people. I mean, we wear watches, we begin things, you know, there's precision, seconds, milliseconds, all of these things are very important to us. In antiquity, really none of those time measurements were of any substantial value to them whatsoever. And so their understanding of day and the cycles of how the functioning of a day actually transpired uh, was very different than ours. And so it's, it's challenging for us, but we have to try and and separate our worldview and our understanding of when we use a word like day from the, the way that the text uses the word day in three very, very different ways. And then it goes on throughout the whole rest of the scripture to use the word day in a whole bunch of other ways. The day of the Lord. Well, that's a whole nother sermon. Um, in Peter, it talks about, you know, the day uh, that God created the heaven and the earth. So there's a whole bunch, like, is not the day, rather, is not to the Lord a day like a thousand years? So sometimes people say, oh, well, maybe it's a thousand years per day. But that's a very, again, different use of the word day. And so it's, it's challenging for us to try and understand the, what is trying to be communicated here is, is not necessarily what we love to feel like is we like to hear. So it's, it's not giving us the information that we want, which makes us a little bit frustrated, I think, at points. So, yeah. Do, do we have another question? Or we could keep going on this one for quite some time. I don't know if I should or not, though. Um... Oh, uh, somebody says, where is the teaching taking place on the 23rd? Oh, great question. (laughs) Right here in the Langley Event Center, up on the fourth floor. So we'll have child care in room A, and we'll have the teaching in room B. And that begins at 6 o'clock. So uh, try to come, if you do have children, try to come a few minutes prior to that to get them checked in and everything, and and then we'll be ready to go beginning at 6. So another question that comes up is, so then how much of the literal translation are we meant to understand, and at what point is faith more important than, um, than pressing into that direction? Like, do we just sort of say, well, it's poetic, jettison Genesis 1, whatever, whatever particular story that I feel has some resonance and has some validity with my particular discipline, science or otherwise, that's the story I'm going to go with. The Bible is not particularly clear. Like, well, at what point do you sort of say, well, okay, we, we got to draw a line here at some point. Well, that, that's a great question because we deal with that in every part of Scripture where we don't quite understand what's happening. Um, I mean, we can think of numerous ones off the top of our head, whether it's scientific stuff in the Psalms, whether it's did the crow, uh, how many times did the crow call, or not the crow, the rooster um, crow one, two, or three times. There's a little bit of disparity disparity in the Gospels on different accounts, who did what, when happened when. And so I guess I would try to rephrase the question of saying, what's the most important part in this passage? And we do the same thing. I mean, numbers, you, we can do tons of studies about numbers when we look at wars, when we look at genealogies of saying, well, 28,000 people died this day. And you can ask the question, well, 28,000 people literally died, right? Is that incorrect if there was 28,042? 
I mean, we, we say that too. We wouldn't, if we had a group of people and we said, how many people came to, uh, to the event we have coming on the 23rd? We said we had 60, but we really had 56. You know, people probably wouldn't call us a liar because we understand in our context that that really isn't the most important thing. So we, we do have that in the text as well. And it is tough to know, well, how much do we take at face value reading it? And how much do we just kind of say, well, we know these other things to be true. So is this true or is this no longer true? And so I, I really feel the conviction that the key is going back to that original audience and saying, what would they have understood in this story? What was most important to them? And to go back to that conversation of looking at day, um, for them, you know, it's probably unrealistic, at least in my opinion, for them to say, well, the day is like a thousand years, because this is, these are people who read the scripture thousands of years before we have that teaching in, in the New Testament, right? So uh, it's, it's not the easy answer. It's the more difficult question because it, it forces us to probe back into that culture of antiquity and understand what sort of questions were they asking? What was the main point for them that God wanted com- to communicate through these authors? And, and so it really brings us actually to kind of the richness of the theology of the message, which is kind of our third subtitle is, well, what, what do we learn theologically from Genesis 1 and from the rest of this book? Yeah. So, I mean, the question there is, what, um, what, do we, what do we see, what do we know for certain? From Genesis chapter one, I guess might be a better better way of phrasing that. Uh, and and what do we what then can we mesh together with those things that we know for certain? And what are things that we would say, you know what we we've, we've got to discount that uh, as as compatible with an understanding of Scripture. Um, so I know we're going to get into a lot of that on the 23rd in the evening uh, with Dr. Brown, but just maybe one example of that, um, something like the differentiation, which, is, which doesn't often come up in conversations, is the precision to try and differentiate with someone when you're talking about uh, evolutionary theory is to try and say, well, do you mean macroevolution or do you mean microevolution? So evolution within a particular species, as an example of something. People often use that and say, well, that points to then Genesis 1 being an invalid account because clearly evolution can happen within a certain range uh, within a species. You know, we can engineer particular animals or genomes or even uh, where I grew up in a farming community, they would engineer things for more uh, drought-resistant crops. And so that was a big question because people would say, well, is that like, we're trying to actually help something evolve. Is that in, should that be in conflict with a belief in God as a creator? Uh, And so that, it's a very live discussion. But Genesis 1 doesn't preclude or exclude a microevolution transpiring within. It doesn't say anything directly against or contradictory to that. Macroevolution, that something would come from nothing or that would evolve from nothing or in the vast changes within species, Genesis 1 would preclude that because God says at the end of Genesis 1 that are going to even seeds and reproduction is going to happen after its own kind. And so Genesis 1 does, we do have some categories where we would look at it and say, yeah, this would be compatible with a biblical worldview, but this, no, this is probably not as compatible with uh, a particular worldview, a biblical worldview. So, Yeah, uh, just kind of going back to some other things we see from Genesis 1, uh, I think that this is really what the, the first audience would have seen, and, and we can see it too, is that it's unquestionable that we have God understood as not only as creator, but God as the sustainer and kind of the manager of everything that's going on in the world. And we may not know exactly 
when or how the earth was created, but we see through, through this text that it's unquestionable that he is the one who's in control here. Um, just some of the reading that, that, you, come, that you come across, it, it brings the richness of the whole biblical story to a head, and, and it's just really incredible to see. And one of the things is you'll notice that one of the, the listed creatures who is created in this passage is the great sea monsters, or they're actually, I think the literal translation is monsters, um, and you kind of think to yourself, well, why, why are these animals listed specifically? And I think the, the rationale is that these were people back in antiquity. First of all, the sea was something that was looked at as a chaotic form. And you had that in the text of, of sort of saying there was disarray. It seems violence, violent. It seems scary. And now these are people who didn't want to go out on the water. And whether it was rumor or, or whatever it was, the Ogopogo or Leviathan or the great giant squid, I mean, we, we don't really know. But the point is that God created this creature. And God is the one who can control uh, this, this animal, this creature. And, I mean, that's, that's a huge point when you think about the implications for your life is that everything that has come to be is under God's domain and under his rule. And so the, 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 it's, just a, it's just a great point that comes from that that I think is really kind of the overarching uh, message of this text, not necessarily what was created when and, and what species and how did God literally and actually bring this process uh, to occur, but sort of what, why did it matter to this, to this people? Another thing real quickly I'll, I'll try to explain is when you look at the first couple of days of creation and the meaning that it would have had to this original group, uh, you have time that's created because God differentiated light and darkness. And so time was huge because time meant that there was seasons. It meant that there was sunlight and, and um, nighttime as well, there was darkness. And you also saw that there was weather that was created. And so again, that brought forth seasons and that brought forth food. And, and then when you look at all the animals that were created as well. So in the first couple of days, the most important things that these people would have, would have seen, and these are people that have different creation stories and there's myths about how, how all these things came together and ancient uh, people groups are looking at doing different rituals to bring across rain. And you see in this, in this passage, God created time, he created weather, and he created the food system for all of you to survive. And that's a really powerful statement when you think about that for, for that group. We don't really care too much about that when we read into it. Like, well, we don't, you know, now we understand how science brings about all this stuff. But for those individuals to be able to have that message to them of God brought all this into being, he manages it well. And that's, a, that's an amazing statement. I think the, one of the big picture pieces from Genesis 1 is that the story really highlights the who and the why of creation instead of the how. We like the how. We would love to know more about the how. The how to us is the answers that we look for in all kinds of areas of our life. But what we're to understand from Genesis chapter 1 is the big picture, the who question and the why question, that there's intention and purpose behind creation and that there is a creator behind uh, creation. And so that's the, that's the things that we are um, to understand from the rest of the biblical text too. I mean, there's lots of other places beyond Genesis chapter 1. You look at a text like Isaiah chapter 40 verse 28, which says, uh, do you not know, have you not heard that God is the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary. 
uh, or John chapter 1 that talks about the Word, which is Christ, being present uh, before creation. Or Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 17 that says, In Him all things, that's Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. And so the whole Bible tells us the story about God as a powerful, sovereign creator. And so the intent of the creation text is not so much to inform us about science and history as it is really to inform us about God and to help us understand that God is the ruler, that nothing is outside of his control uh, or management in that category. And so the way that we, the way that we um, would articulate that uh, in our confession of faith our Mennonite Brethren uh, Confession of Faith. Mike, can you just put that up there for us for a second? Is that, again, it's going to focus on bigger picture questions for us. We believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Again, we're focusing on the who and the why, not so much on the how, and they were very good. All of creation expresses God's sovereign will and design, but remains distinct from the Creator. The universe belongs to God, who takes care and delight in sustaining it, and creation declares God's wisdom and his power and calls us to worship him. And so those are kind of some of the bigger category type questions uh, that come to us from Genesis chapter 1 in particular. Uh, and a lot of the specifics we can get into, but maybe just kind of as we move to conclusion, Keith, what's something that um, has really kind of grabbed you as you've read through and, and processed and engaged with the text in Genesis? Uh, well, one thing that just kind of came uh, earlier in this week as I was uh, interacting with Dr. Brown is uh, the concept of water, and I alluded to it a little bit with uh, creation in, the, in this matter. And, and just being able to see that through the rest of, of the Bible, he said, you know, how much more powerful then when we understand uh, this, this people group's concept of how terrible the waters are and how God is in control of them. You look at the story of Jesus who calms the storm, and he's here with his disciples, and a violent, violent storm is going on, and they're scared, and, and then Jesus stands up and says, you know, be still, and he quiets the waves and the wind, and, and we look at that, and it's certainly miraculous, and then you look at it at a, at a deeper level, and you just think, who else could do this if not the Creator? You know, who else could do this if not part of the triune God, who literally could say, I brought you into being, I spoke you into existence, um, and, and I am in control of everything that's going on. And, and I think just as we begin, as we continue to probe deeper into texts like these, we see more and more evidence of God's faithfulness and continuity throughout the scriptures. And as we continue to understand what, what science tells us, as we make more empirical discoveries around our, our world, it just deepens the level of awe that we have for God. And, and it's certainly, it leads us to worship in much broader ways. I think our, our response uh, to is maybe typified in a, a quote by Sir Thomas Brown, who uh, in the early part of the 17th century uh, talked a little bit about this. And he said, the wisdom of God receives small honor from those vulgar heads that stare rudely about and with a cross rustically admire his works. But those who magnify him whose judicious inquiry, who, are, who set their minds to figure out his acts and their deliberate research into his creatures, they return the duty of a devout and learned admiration. It speaks to our response to God's revelation to us. And we want to wrap up uh, today with a, uh, a video that, that actually shows people responding in real time to God's uh, creation. This is some footage 
uh, from the Apollo 8 mission. If you're familiar with history, Apollo 8 was the first uh, uh, spaceship where they orbited the earth and could look down on our planet from outside of it. And the, the response that it prompted in them I think is a good example for us too. So let's roll this as we move to our benediction. The engines are on. Four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit. We have we have liftoff. Liftoff at seven fifty one AM Eastern Standard Time. this morning is that we would see you in your creation, that we would come to a greater understanding of how you move in our lives, Lord, and how we can respond to your goodness. Lord, you're a gracious God who created the world for, for us, really, Lord. You created 
us as the supreme act of, of your creation, and you've entrusted us to, to care for it and to honor you with our worship. And so, God, as we continue to look into this rich book of Genesis, uh, give the, us the wisdom to understand uh, what you're telling us, how you are teaching and instructing us to live, that we may honor you with all of our hearts. Amen.